all. Thanks so much for watching Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we're welcomed by Dr. Hamilton Baker, who is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Public Health and the lead of the Clemson MUSC AI Hub for the Medical University of South Carolina. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We are happy to talk to you today, and we're talking about AI specifically and how that applies to medicine, to your everyday work, and also how you're getting these innovations from somebody's brain into practice. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what is the Clemson MUSC AI Hub? Yeah, so the Clemson MUSC AI Hub is um, a collaboration between the two institutions that's mission. Uh, is to increase uh, research in the area of artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning in the biomedical sphere um, to build teams across the two institutions. Um, it was started about four years ago um, by myself and Dr. Jihad Obeid at MUSC and then grew across to Clemson um, and the, is supported by the provost offices uh, at both institutions. So it's interesting, what kinds of uh, projects are is the hub uh, supporting and how far along have you seen those projects develop? Uh, earlier when we were talking in the pre-interview, you were talking about particularly some of the challenges in moving projects from the research stage uh, into the clinical stage. And so I'd be curious to know how the hub is helping with that as well. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it, it kind of leads into the the different components of the hub and how we support these projects and get them off the ground. And so, you know, one of the main uh, one of the main components of the hub is a seminar series that we have every two weeks, where we bring in speakers from MUSC and Clemson, but also from across the nation and from startups and industry. And that's really to stimulate people to get them as part of this community of practice that the hub represents uh, for AI and medicine. And from there, we increase interest. And, and one way we're able to get folks that are interested uh, in this area um, and help them integrate machine learning into their research is uh, a consult service that we have through the Clemson MUSC AI Hub. And what that consult service provides is that researchers, uh, either in clinical or basic science, any area really in biomedicine uh, that are interested in integrating these methods into their research, but don't necessarily have the expertise to do it, can come to us for a completely free consult. And that includes all the leadership of the AI hub. What we do is when they come to us with their research question, hypothesis, et cetera, we help them figure out how they can apply machine learning methods in order to, um, improve or um, augment their analytics. From there, if we agree that it, it seems like a project that makes sense uh, and a way to integrate machine learning, then we help get them connected with the expertise. And that's where this community of practice and the network of the hub becomes so important, expanding across both Clemson and MUSC. Because what it allows us to do is identify those that have the technical machine learning expertise to help these researchers and we pair the two together and through that we create amazing collaborative teams and that's really where those projects that you're talking about come from fortunately with the support of the provost's office of both institutions we've been able to have the funding to to provide some pilot funds to get some of these groups really up and running towards extramural funding some specific examples are uh, the 
identification of diabetic macular edema um, in, uh, in patients uh, just by looking at a picture of the back of their eye. Um, some other one other grants that we funded are those that are looking at the genetics of cancer and applying machine learning to that. Um, another one looks uh, at how to identify major adverse cardiac events uh, very early, especially in the rural population through the use of wearables. Those are just some great examples. Um, you know, we're early on in this process. We've been giving out pilot funding just for uh, one full year now. We're in the process of implementing our second year. Um, but these teams have made great progress. Um, they've uh, had publications, posters, and are preparing extramural grant funding. So I'm just really proud of these teams that we put together. Uh, and even those that we haven't been able to provide funding to yet, they're off and running as well. How do you see that transforming these two institutions? And is it unusual to see two bigger institutions within a state working together this intimately? Well, uh, I think in some ways it is when you look at other states uh, and other areas. However, I think it makes a lot of sense for Clemson and MUSC. And we do have a, a long history of collaboration with them. So um, in a lot of ways, this is really building upon previous um, previous relationships in biomedical engineering and, and drug discovery and other areas. Uh, I, I think in one of the reasons why Clemson and MUSC fit so well together is that Clemson doesn't have a specific medical school necessarily, and MUSC is not part of a larger undergraduate and graduate school. We're just a health university. And so it really is a, a perfect pairing of synergy in that way. Uh, because it, it, it became very apparent to me in the early days of starting the hub when I would talk to experts at Clemson that are interested in doing machine learning biomedical research, they don't have access to clinicians. They don't have access to the data. So not only did, can they not get their hands on good data, they can't get interaction with domain experts to make sure that they're headed in the right direction with their research and building tools that we're really going to use one day. Um, and, and really, you know, those that will help people. And so I believe that pairing, especially in this area, makes it a, a, almost a no-brainer and, and has worked extremely well. Excellent. You've described that, yeah, very, very helpfully to us, Dr. Baker. Uh, I'm really curious to understand how some of these uh, research-based programs are now starting to move into the practice and where are you starting to see some of that happen, either within MUSC Clemson uh, you know, partnership arena or or even outside uh, of that in, in the uh, uh, applications that you were describing from, from industry or from startups. Uh, can you give us some examples of where you're starting to see some of the AI move into actual practice? Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. I think some of the earliest tools were based on computer vision or analysis of images, and, and we've seen those um, seen those implemented quite successfully in a lot of different uh, software suites, uh, those that can identify uh, diabetic retinopathy, those that can identify various findings on chest x-rays and CAT scans and MRIs, uh, especially of the brain. Um, there are, there are even more complex solutions that are, are coming to market uh, through um, through collaborations between industry 
uh, and academics, and one in particular at MUSC um, that Adam Matuskowitz, Dr. Adam Matuskowitz is working on uh, and had some assistance from the AI Hub with a uh, startup, um, is looking at evaluating chest pain in adults as they come into the emergency room. So you can imagine that that is, you know, that's an enormous thing to take on, a very complex problem. It's not simply a, a, a very selective task, like can you identify a very specific diagnosis on a very specific scan. This is taking a huge heterogeneous population of patients that could be coming in from everything from a little bit of heartburn all the way to a full-blown myocardial infarction or heart attack. And so what this tool is designed to do is aid, uh, aid the, the clinicians that are dealing with these patients by helping them figure out what the probability of each of these complex diagnoses given the patient's information in the EHR. It's really a pretty revolutionary thing. I think that's a great example of how you're going to see these uh, very soon. Uh, becoming part of the clinical workflow. I think there are, you know, some some simpler ones that are even already part of the clinical workflow that have been integrated into the EHR that are not as obviously machine learning or artificial intelligence, but are helping behind the scenes. And then I think, you know, the area of, of the patient experience is, is one in which I hope to see, uh, and, and we are starting to see uh, the effects of how machine learning can improve care. I think specifically in the area of chatbots um, powered by large language models that could interact with patients and providers to help them um, move in the right direction with chronic disease by prompting them, uh, interacting with them, supporting both clinicians uh, and patients. Are you, do you have an example already in that area of chatbots? I find them fascinating because I guess we're all using them, particularly like say with financial institutions. Some seem to be pretty robust and then others are still falling flat and they just give you a, a short list of, hey, is your question in this area? But in the medical space, I would think it's so much more complicated. So are, do you have any, are you seeing any examples with any institutions that are using chatbots or for any particular disease area where... The conversation is more than just a perfunctory, you know, hit a number and you know select make a selection. Yeah, yeah, um, it's it's a very interesting question. I think you really hit the nail on the head there because it is complex. And in order to, in my opinion, in order to have a successful chatbot, and that's one that patients want to use and want to interact with, it has to feel supportive and real and not artificial, right? I think one of the keys to doing that is starting in a particular area, not saying, oh, we're going to, you know, interact with a patient that has five different medical problems and tackle all of those. But a, a company that I'm actually uh, meeting with uh, next week um, to talk more about their product, um, they started by looking at uh, maternal health. Um, and so, you know, in that, in that postnatal period where so many little things can go wrong, um, and, and a lot of support is needed, especially not only in the hospital, but out of the hospital. They very successfully integrated a chatbot tool uh, that also has a component of organizing the patient's care. Um, and it, um, in my opinion, in their examples, uh, it seems to work very well and has been widely accepted in the institutions that they have implemented it um, and that they have gotten great feedback. I think it's 
one of the other important things is iterative, iterative process of development, right? You're never done. You can't just build a chat bot and, and shoot it out there. You have to constantly be getting feedback. Also, you know, pretty much everybody suddenly knows about large language models now because of uh, chat GPT. Uh, that was something that's been going on for decades, but now has really become something that everyone is talking about because uh, I think now at this point, you know, probably majority of adults have at least tried to use it and uh, interacted with it. Maybe not a majority, but an awful lot of people. And it's pretty, it's pretty mind blowing if you haven't interacted with a large language model. As those become more and more developed, and you have APIs and ability to to interact with those and integrate them into um, biomedical chat box, you know, healthcare based chat box chat bots, I think you'll you'll see a, a, a that really take off. Because I don't know if you've, if either of you have had the opportunity to play around with it a little bit, but it's pretty amazing how at times it can work extremely well and, and sound very, very human in a lot of ways. Now, obviously you need a lot of oversight with large language models like that. And, and we're still a ways off by just letting those loose in the biomedical healthcare space. But I think the, you know, the potential value and the potential positive effects, um, we're starting to see just how, you know, enormous that could be if they're, if they're used appropriately. Two questions related to that. With the chatbots, whenever they are so human and are handling a, a large portion of things pretty effectively, at what point is their oversight? Do doctors go through and review those transcripts or are there, are there people to see if there's something that they might've missed or might've misinterpreted? And then I think it makes total sense that you were saying they started that chatbot with the maternal population because in general, stereotypically, they're going to be younger patients who might be better with technology and have access to technology. But how do you then apply those types of technologies to a population of older people? Great questions. Great questions. Uh, yes, there needs to be a fair amount of oversight. And of course, it, it needs to be um, paired with the, the potential risk, of course, right? And so, um, you know, those interactions do need to be monitored and reviewed um, and make sure that uh, you're optimizing the interaction. Also, it, it is not as complicated as you might think to build in safeguards and have those conversations directly routed to a human. Uh, you know, if at any time it seems as though they're going out of an area that you you're, you uh, are comfortable with them handling. So I think it's I think it's uh, easier than you might think to implement those and mature them in a safe way that's not going to lead to any patient harm. Now, you're right, a lot of it has to do with the population on the other end of that, right? Because if they're not using it, what's the utility of it? Um, in my experience, and I think there's there's some, um, some research to back this up, that there is a bit of a misconception about the elderly uh, uh, population and their, their fear or hesitance to work with these types of tools. You know, some of the smartest folks in machine learning have told me over and over again, the best machine learning is the kind that you don't know is there. It just seems like magic. It works great. And when you provide tools like that, nobody cares if they're AI machine learning or not. It's really what they're able to help do and accomplish. And so if you have the right user interface, I don't think the, 
the uh, the older patient population um, will have any real hesitancy. It's just about you know that whole process of human centered design, patient centered design. We need to figure out what they want, and that takes time and effort, and it might not be the same product or chat bot or interface that works for the, you know, uh, the new moms. And I think that's where the human component is so important that we need to play a huge role in designing, overseeing and using these tools because they can help us enormously. Um, but if we implement them too quickly and don't take the time to design them in a way that is directed towards specific populations and cater to them, they could flop. Yeah, Dr. Baker, I'm, I'm intrigued by your answer. I actually have a kind of similar question as you were talking through that. What I'm wondering is that the outputs are really only as good as the inputs, right? So how do you ensure that your machine language learning models have adequate data that covers the breadth of the population? In South Carolina, I'm sure you have such a diverse population, but how do you make sure that uh, race, gender, uh, you know, things like uh, sexual preference, all those kinds of things are taken into account as you're studying the kinds of patients on whom you would apply these. So is that a particular concern? I mean, many of us, you know, wouldn't be able to figure out how to deal with such massive amounts of data, but how do you see you as the folks who are providing the guidance and consulting to these companies, ensuring that they're really training their models on adequate uh, streams of data. Very important topic. And, and one of the main components of that is bias, right? We've seen bias um, well before machine learning. It's It's been integrated into algorithms that we know have provided uh, racial disparity care, right? It's been it's been documented, and unfortunately, if machine learning is implemented in a well, if models are trained on data with bias, then we could just add fuel to this fire, right? Fortunately, I think the community of machine learning experts and data scientists in biomedicine and healthcare are very aware of this now. Um, we've had some great work that's been done that has shown in just research and not necessarily upon clinical implementation, that there is the potential for significant despair, you know, creating significant disparities through this bias. And so there are a number of different ways uh, that uh, have been, um, you know, that, that address this issue. Number one is simply being aware of it. You have to constantly be aware of it from the very beginning of building your algorithm uh, to the very end of uh, putting that into clinical implementation and all throughout its life cycle, right? Because bias can even creep into an algorithm. And so, um, you know, just the fact that we're getting the input from ethicists and that sort of thing from the very get-go on these is I think the way to go about this. Um, but it's really data diversity too, right? We now need to be responsible for data diversity. We can't simply say, okay, well, I'm going to look at a population between these, this year and that year, I'm going to gather patients and I'm going to train a model that, that's, you know, uh, works on a particular task and, and can provide a diagnosis without knowing the uh, diversity of that data. And so there are old methods and new methods of ensuring that you have data diversity. There's even methods of creating synthetic data to augment that diversity. Um, 
And, and this is a, a very important topic that is largely discussed at, at uh, the numerous conferences in this area. And so I think the future is bright for that. I think that we've identified it. And more importantly, I believe that institutions will be on top of this as they begin to implement these tools in the clinical realm. Even if we've done everything we can do to ensure lack of bias, we need to you know, continually test and monitor uh, that process to make sure that that's not happening. Do you include patients on these panels and the groups that you're helping so that you can make sure you are getting live human in input? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I think, you know, the two areas, if you're really looking to design a clinical tool, two areas that need to be included very early on in design is exactly what you just said, patient population, um, and, you know, not only your targeted population, but, you know, in my particular area, since I'm in pediatrics, you have to look at the patient and the parents and the family, um, all very important. But I also think that the ethics is important to have as a part of this, a bioethicist. They, they don't have to, you know, play, be there at every single research meeting, et cetera, but to have interactions with those folks to make sure that that you're doing everything you can to look uh, at the important ethical implications. And it goes well beyond just bias and, and data diversity issues. You know, you um, you can see the issue arising in, in things as simple as um, patient consent, right? When you have a tool that is completely autonomous, um, that, that puts in a new component in the patient uh, physician relationship or patient provider relationship when you're obtaining consent, because it's not necessarily me anymore that might be making all of these decisions. It might be a decision that's provided to me by um, a algorithm. And then I have to decide whether I think that is the best course of action for the patient. And it almost enters in another agent into that process. And so, so much to think about, so important to get um, large, diverse teams to tackle this sort of thing. Uh, not only ethnic diversity, but background diversity, right? You know, machine learning experts, ethicists, patient population representative and liaisons, um, clinical domain knowledge. You know, it's it, these can't be built in isolation uh, with just a few folks on the team without having all the important areas represented. Because if you don't, that could be a recipe for a disaster for a tool that they could wind up, you know, potentially. Dr. Baker, I'm actually just uh, fascinated uh, and really impressed with uh, the breadth of what you're covering through this, uh, through the hubs, because you have to look at all the technical components, the, the clinical components, uh, the ethical components and, and the human aspects as well. And you're describing them so nicely and eloquently for us. So I uh, really thank you for that. Uh, my question actually is on the human side, coming back to that, I think you covered so many aspects of it. But the one thing that I often uh, worry about, especially when as we work with so many doctors and nurses in clinical practice, is the acceptability uh, or, or the acceptance, I should say, of the physician for these tools. Uh, are they actually willing to use the outputs? Are they trusting enough of them? Uh, are they willing to try to slow down long enough to try to insert these uh, tools into their workflows? Uh, and so maybe you can talk a little bit about how you gain the physician's uh, engagement and willingness uh, to, uh, to participate in the process as well. 
That's a great question. I think you've identified the potential Achilles heel of a lot of these tools, right? You can design a beautiful tool that has, you know, um, just incredible accuracy, but if you don't integrate it effectively into the clinical workflow in a way that the provider is going to be able to interact with easily, it could just, you know, just go no place. Um, but fortunately, this is not the first tech to have that issue, right? EHRs pave the way. Um, and that was a very bumpy road at a lot of institutions. I think any provider that you talk to probably has a few complaints. Now, there's also a ton of wonderful things about EHR, and I'm actually a huge proponent of it. You know, not only do I think in the end, once you get over all those moguls and bumps, does is it it's a better way to provide care, but it is a much better way to collect data. That's for sure. And that's what's going to power all these tools in the end, right? Um, but to answer your question more specifically, you know, I thought a lot about this and, and have given lectures on it. I think it's very interesting, you know, because I have the, the physician perspective, but there are people whose expertise is in this area. And that's who we need to tap into, because although there are some new aspects that go along with AI and machine learning that you hit on specifically, which are, you know, it could provide a, a diagnosis without, you know, a complete uh, diagnosis, which is a different interaction. Physicians aren't used to that. They're used to getting information to integrate and come up with the diagnosis. But this process has been done before, and we need to stand on the on the shoulders of those giants that have already tackled these huge problems because it's not terribly different. And I, you know, I, I from my perspective, uh, from my clinical hat on, um, it's all about workflow and timing, right? You you really need to respect the fact that providers at all levels are just pushed to the max right now. And so you need to lead with how this is going to make it easier, but not just say that, actually make it easier for them for a few days and, and be there by their side and show them how it makes things easier. And then you'll, you'll see these successfully implemented. And of course, the patient side too. When your patient's happy, as a provider, you're happier, right? So if you see this process helping your patients and helping you interact with them better, you know, the chat bots, for example, that we talked about that someday might be powered by these large language models. Once you're, you have that time, you know, you're not having to respond to as many straightforward, simple things. You can really focus in on those important ones. You know, boy, that's the patient I need to spend 20, 30 minutes with on the phone. And, and now in the future, you might have that time much more readily than it being, you know, at six or seven o'clock when you want to get home to, to your family and have dinner and that sort of thing. So that's where, I, you know, I, I think that if we if we look at it with that sort of foresight and team up with these people that have already done it, that's how we're going to solve that problem. What fuels your personal passion around this? Because you are clearly very excited about this and the opportunity that it can bring to everybody involved in healthcare. So what drives you to keep going down this road? Well, you know, um, yeah, you may have opened a, a, another interview there because um, it's hard to put this succinctly. But, you know, I, I um, encountered this area a little bit per chance. I attended a conference. I have to give credit to Dr. Anthony Chang of AI Medics Organization that, um, that was started a, a, a long way back now um, about getting AI into medicine. But long story short, I, I went to it. Um, a bit skeptical and left a complete believer in this area and went on to get a master's in, in data science. I think what, what fuels my passion is the potential, right? I think um, the potential is huge, but also the need to implement these tools, create them, 
implement them and monitor them in the right way is going to completely determine the success or failure of AI in medicine. Now, I don't think failure is really an option or realistic because AI is not going anywhere. You know, it's, it's hugely important, but it's more the time span, right? Are we going to see these benefits in five to 10 years? Or is it going to take 10 to 20 because we didn't do it right the first time around or the first few times around? And that's really where my passion is to make sure that the awareness is there for everybody that, that you know, you don't have to be a machine learning expert to understand how important this stuff is um, and how much it could help us if we all work together and do it right. You know, my own my own project that fuels my desire to keep the research infrastructure at these in, two institutions and the entire state of South Carolina building is um, is in congenital heart disease. That's what I work in. And we're designing a computer vision model to diagnose particular congenital heart defects autonomously by ultrasound or echocardiography. We're in the very early stages, but, you know, I, I got the background, you know, through doing that master's and, and just found it fascinating. And now this opportunity to truly apply it in my own area um, I'm even more excited than I was before. So I, I don't I don't see uh, my my passion lessening at all. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing this conversation with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Wonderful interview. Thank you, Dr. Baker. Yeah, Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.